James 4, verses 1 through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body parts? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us? But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that as we explore what you've said in your word, that nothing but the truth would be taught from this pulpit. We pray that our eyes and our hearts and our minds would be open to the truth, and then we would look deep with inside ourselves to see what Scripture says about the way we live. We ask that you would guide us in the way that you would have us to go. In Christ's name, amen. Like the book of 1 John, the book of James is a book of tests. You know, 1 John is written so that you can know that you are saved, and James gives us a series of tests to prove one's genuineness of faith. Today, we're going to be looking at the test of worldly indulgence, the danger of being a friend to the world. There are some things that uh, James, and previously to this section of the book, talks about and introduces that run parallel to our passage today. Kind of turn back to James chapter 1, verse 27. <coughs> James 1, 27 Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Also, there are some things that uh, James talks about that doesn't mention the world, but in James 1, 5 through 8, he says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In these verses, James introduces two concepts. One is the concept of the world. So we need to kind of know what we're talking about when we're talking about the world, and the Greek word for it is Cosmos, only with a K and not a C, just kind of like the TV show. And it could be that which pertains to space and time or the sum total of the material universe. It could be the sum total of persons living in the world. But in, here, in this case, it actually means the spiritual reality of the man-centered 
Satan-directed system of this present age, which is hostile to God and God's people. Let me say that again. The spiritual reality of the man-centered, Satan-directed system of this present age, which is hostile to God and God's people. We must keep this definition in mind when we're going through the book of James. The world is self-centered. It has a godless value system. Its goals are self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgent, and self-satisfaction. It's described in Ephesians 1, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, which Mike went through last Wednesday. Once you were dead, doomed forever because of your many sins. You used to live just like the rest of the world, full of sin, obeying Satan, the mighty prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passions and desires of our evil nature. We were born with an evil nature, and we were under God's anger, just like everybody else. Of course, that's the New Living Translation. I like that because it kind of gives a commentary along with the scripture about what we're in. We used to live just like the rest of the world. In other words, as Christians, we lived different, or we're supposed to live different. And we were following the passions and desires of our evil nature. We were born with that evil nature, and we were under God's curse, just like everybody else. So that's the world. Also, we talk about double-minded men, and that's going to become important as I go on later in in James. Double-minded, there's a, a definition for it that really helps me. Divided loyalty. In this verse, it talks about our loyalty being divided between God and the world. A double-minded man or a man with divided loyalty is often looked down. If you're a husband and your loyalty is divided between your wife and anything else, oh boy, (laughs) leave it to me to break it. If you're a husband and your, your loyalty is divided between your life and anything else is about to fall, There we go. There we go. Sorry about that. Your wife isn't going to put up with that, and rightfully so. Your loyalty to your wife as your wife belongs solely to your wife. So a loyalty divided with another woman, definitely bad. Your wife and the NFL, definitely bad. Your wife and whoever. If you have a double loyalty, divided loyalty, double-mindedness, it is not good. We take that and we magnify it 10,000 times or more, and God says, I will not share you with anybody else. So a double-minded man, a man with divided loyalty, whose loyalty is divided between God and the world, is an abomination to God. And that's what James looks at in these verses that we're going to look at. An example of the world that I think is really poignant, is in Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. So if you'll turn with me to Luke 12. And verse 13. Now someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, 
You there, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? But he said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not, for not even when one is affluent does that life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land, of the, rich was, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began thinking to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. I will tell, tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store my grain and my goods there. And I will say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years to come. Relax, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Right there is the, that's the philosophy of the world. That's our goal. That's the goal of everybody in the world. I want to relax, eat, drink, and enjoy myself. But it says in verse 20, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is demanded of you. And as for all you that prepared, you have prepared who will own it now. Such is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich in a relation to God. Eat, drink, be merry, enjoy yourself, for tomorrow we die. That's the slogan of the world. So now we kind of have an idea of what we're talking about when we say the world. Next, we need to determine who James is talking to in this passage. So if we go to the very first chapter of James, we see that it's addressed to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now, these could be those that were scattered abroad because of the persecution uh, after Stephen was stoned. It could be those that are the progeny of the 12 tribes that were taken away by Assyria and Babylon. Uh, could be a combination of both of these groups. It could be the church, both Jews and Gentiles. It could be any of these groups that James is talking to. But right now, right here, James is talking to Christ Reformed Church. And especially James is talking to Bruce Coker. So when we go, oh, well, he, who's he talking to? Why is he talking to it? This scripture is for here and now because it talks to those of us living in America in 2023. So let's read with verse 1 in chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war against your body parts? <clears throat> so who is the you he's talking about? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it conflict within the church congregation? Is it conflict within a family? Is it with different congregations or different denominations between people in general? Oh, there's a lot of conflict now. Just drive on the interstate and you'll see conflict and hatred and, oh my goodness. Conflict between two people? I think, in a sense, yes, it could be all of those, but I think what we're talking about now is conflict in you. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts in you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your body? We are conflicted. We have a new nature. We have an old nature. We have an old nature that says, I want 
to live and eat and drink and be merry and enjoy myself. And then we have a new nature that says, no, you're a new creation. The old things have passed away. The old things are gone. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You're to die. You're to deny yourself. And these two conflicts are constantly within it. So James is saying, okay, so you've got this conflict. There's a source of, that just makes you mad so that you have conflict with another person. Why is this? Because your inside old self is screaming for things of this world. And what does it do? It's a source of pleasures and it wages war in our body parts. What does it say in 2 Peter? To drop every weight that keeps you from running the race because it wages war against your soul. So, it's the source of your pleasures that wage war. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. Now, I looked at that and I thought, wow, that's kind of, you know, over the top. You, you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. I just finished a case, and it was a case of probate, and a gentleman died, and he left thanks to his heirs. There is an error in this, and he wanted what he was not entitled to. So just like the story where they said, make my brother share with me, I had this error. And he wanted what the others were entitled to. I have never in 32 years of law practice seen an angrier man. And I'm sure that this guy who had more money than any of the other heirs, if he was able, and if he would get away with it and would not have to suffer consequences, he could have easily killed me, killed the judge, and killed his brothers. He was that angry. I've never seen it. And there's no explanation because he had more than all of the rest of them put together. But because of greed, he wanted more than that. I think God allowed me to see that so that I could say, wow, there is an anger there, a greed that comes up within us so much that we would, if we could get away with it, kill. But sometimes we do. What about gossip? Is gossip not the preferred murder instrument of the self-righteous? We can't kill. We can't do anything, but... Did you hear about so-and-so? And then add a little slander to that. You know, it's not really a lie, but we're going to embellish the truth. Well, that's a lie. So-and-so did this, and you make it worse. You make it where they look bad. And you're like a little sniper, killing them slowly with your words as it goes through. Now, we're still angry. Isn't it amazing how the people that you love the most you can get the angriest with? But see, there's a difference in this kind of anger. I, can, I love Chris with all my heart, but she can make me crazier than any person alive. And I love my children and my grandchildren, and it's the same thing. They can drive me crazy. Why do they drive me crazy? Because I love them. If I didn't love them, I wouldn't care what they think. 
but because I love them and care what they think, they drive me crazy. That's not the anger I'm talking about. The anger that I'm talking about is somebody that I want what they have. I'm entitled to it. I should get that. I want that, and they have it, and I don't care if they worked hard for it. I want it. And they have it, and I can't, so I'm going to destroy them. What can I destroy them with? I can destroy them with my words. Or I could do things that just make life hard for them. But inside there's that seething bitterness. That seething bitterness that just... Ah! Oh, that's deadly, folks. That's deadly. If you have that bitterness in your heart, and I've had that bitterness in my heart towards people, I hate to admit it, but I have. You've got to repent of it. And sometimes you have to keep repenting of it. Keep repenting of it. I had a judge one time that was awful. And he was so rude, and he was so mean, and he treated me so badly in court. And this wasn't where I practiced law generally. It was in one of the bigger counties. And I was so mad. And I mean, I would wake up mad, and I would go to bed mad. Now, I couldn't do anything to this judge, and I wouldn't do anything to this judge. But I had a bitterness. I had an anger. And this bitterness and this anger was eating me up, and I finally had to say to the Lord, God, I can't do this. Please take this. And I had to keep doing it, and keep doing it, and keep doing it, and keep doing it, until it was gone. So that's the kind of anger that we're talking about. You lust, and you have. You commit murder. You're envious, and you cannot obtain so you fight and you quarrel and you plot and you scheme but verse three you ask and you do not receive oh sorry you do not have because you do not ask i'm sorry i skipped a very important part that's a wonderful thing and should be a reminder to all of us you don't have because you don't ask that reminds us that we have to ask it's not guaranteed. We, we take so many things for granted, especially when God is involved. One of the things I always have to watch out for is being presumptuous of and taking for granted his forgiveness. You know, I kind of sinned, but, you know, I'm, it's a little, there is no little sin. That's, by the way, we're going to study Wednesday night is little sins, big sins. We take for granted things that God gives us. We don't have because we don't ask, especially spiritually. Oh, I wish I had a compassionate heart. Have you asked God for a compassionate heart? Oh, I wish, you know, I'm talking about asking God for good things that glorify him. We need to ask. We forget to ask. But here James is talking about you, you ask. You don't have because you don't ask. And then when you do ask, you're asking for the wrong things. We're like the little kid. Who, who prays, you know, God, give me a pony. Well, you know, does he need a pony? Of course, you know, we all see kids ask like that. God bless mommy and daddy and this, and also God, give me a new bike. You know, some of us still pray that way, only we pray, you know, for bigger things, of course. But please give me a pony. Or if you give me a pony, I'll quit cussing. Or, if you give me a pony, then I will believe in you. You know, that's the way the world prays. Have you ever noticed that? If you're watching in a movie or television or something like that, that's the way the world prays. 
Oh God, if you get me through this, then I will do something for you. Thinking that we could ever do anything for God. No, we're not to pray like that. We're not to pray for things. Of course, we're to pray for things that we need, like food and shelter and good jobs and health. And we can pray for that. And when God gives it, the Bible says we're to pray for that with thanksgiving. But the Bible does tell us, pour all your cares upon God because he cares for you. All your anxieties, all your cares, because he cares for you. But realizing full well that if he does not grant that, we fall back to Romans 8.28, which says, obviously, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. So that's how we should pray, but not praying for things that we need or want that do not glorify God. So we have the prayer. We ask but we do not receive because we ask with the wrong motives, so we may spend them on our pleasures. Now, here's where I want to camp out, camp out a lot. Verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God, that whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? I think right now I'd like to take some time before we start unpacking this verse to let you know where I'm going with this. We live in America, what some people have said is the Disneyland of countries. We live in a place where pretty much we're not worried about where our next meal is coming from. We're not worried about being attacked by an outside enemy. We're not worried about not having a job, or we're not worried about even if we do get sick, we have the best medical care in the world. We can literally get online and find anything that has been manufactured and ordered, and in most times get it delivered within 24 hours. That is what we live in. And we're used to that, and sometimes we forget how the rest of the world lives. I recently heard of a pastor, and I believe this story is true, but I don't know, but I'm using it for purposes of illustration. This pastor went to China, and he was to teach the Chinese church. The people that came to see him, some of them traveled three days by train to get to them. There are no benches or seats, so they sat on a hardwood floor and he taught them from 8 in the morning until 5, until he was too tired to teach anymore. As he visited with them, he noticed that many of them didn't have Bibles, but many of them had large portions of Scripture memorized. And so he wanted to find out how they were able to memorize Scriptures without having their own Bibles. Many of them said, we learned a lot when we were in prison. We were in prison for our faith, of course, we were not allowed to have Bibles, so our brothers and sisters that would visit us would write scriptures on little strips of paper, and they would smuggle it into us. And we would memorize these scriptures before we got caught with them and got them taken away and confiscated. And we know that there's not a lot of Bibles, so our brothers and sisters would write 
pieces of paper that we would memorize and then we would share to others. We don't have that experience here. This is a letter that was in a book called Margin by Richard um, Swinson, who is a Christian physician, and he wrote this book that I had read many years ago. But in this, this is a letter written by the wife of a pastor in Vietnam. Her husband was in jail. She hadn't seen him for years. She and her children were forced, but without official papers, and her husband being in jail, to live on a balcony of an apartment building in Vietnam. This is the letter that she wrote. My dear friends, you know around here we are experiencing hardships, but we thank the Lord. He is comforting us and caring for us in every way. When we experience misfortunes, adversity, distress, and hardship, only then do we see the real blessing of the Lord poured down on us in such a way that we cannot contain it. We have been obliged recently to leave our modest apartment and for over two months have been living on the balcony. The rain has been beating down and soaking us. Sometimes in the middle of the night, we are forced to gather our blankets and run to seek refuge in a stairwell. Do you know what I do then? I laugh and I praise the Lord because we can still take shelter in the stillwell. I think of how many people are experiencing much worse hardships than I am. Then I remember the words of the Lord. To the poor, O Lord, you are a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, Isaiah 25, 4. And I am greatly comforted. Our Father is the one who, according to the scriptures, does not break the bruised reed or put out the flickering lamp. He is the one who looks after the orphan and the widow. He is the one who brings blessings and peace to the numberless people. I do not know what words to use in order to describe the love that the Lord has shown our family. I can only bow my knees and my heart and offer to the Lord words of deepest thanks and praise. Although we have lost our house and our possessions, we have not lost the Lord. He is enough. With the Lord, I have everything. The only thing I would fear is losing his blessing. Could I ask you and our friends in the church abroad to continue to pray for us that I will faithfully follow the Lord and serve him regardless of what my circumstances would be. As for my husband is concerned, I was able to visit him this past summer. We had a 20-minute conversation that brought us great joy. I greet you with my love, Miss Nijin Thu Am. That's what the rest of the church in the world is facing. 
And here we are in Disneyland. So, let's look at verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Much like repentance is turning from sin to God, spiritual adultery is turning from God to the supreme love of the world. It's a violation of our covenant with God. We are double-minded. We have half of our love with the world and half with God. We want God's blessings unless it interferes with our worldly blessings. Saying to God, I'm sorry, you don't satisfy me. She has nothing, and she's satisfied. The Christians in China have nothing, but they will drive or take a three-day train ride and sit on a hardwood floor to hear the word of God. When they get scriptures, they memorize them as quickly as they can and then pass them on. We're in danger in America. We really are. We have disposable income. We have instant credit. We have continuous entertainment. We have continuous access to the world through the internet and through television. We have freedom from hunger. We have freedom from fear of outside enemies, access to travel, protection against our rights, best medical care, free education, welfare, and again, if it's made, we can buy it. We have the world at our fingertips, and we love it. As Christians, we live in this world. The Bible warns us in Matthew 19, 23 through 25, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because the rich men, like most Americans who, yes, even are poor, are rich, do not really believe that we need God. We are self-sufficient. We are self-made. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We need God, sure, to get into heaven because even though we're 97% there, we need God for that little 3% to just kind of give us the boost over into heaven that we need. But we're American. We don't need anything. We've never needed anything, and we will never need anything. We are happy with ourselves. But you know what? We're actually miserable. How many prescriptions for antidepressants are written in America? And have you noticed who commits suicide? It's the rich, the rock stars, the actors. Anybody that knows Hillary Clinton? Okay, Denny, I did it, sorry. There's a suicide here because people are miserable. I have people that are rich and their clients, and they are the most miserable of all people. They're afraid that somebody's going to take what they have, and they want more, and they want more from other people. But they are not satisfied with what would satisfy many, many people. They always want more, just one dollar more, just one more car, 
just one more house, just one more vacation. They want more. But yet, when they get it, they're not happy. They're miserable because they have worked their whole life. They've stepped on people. They've abused people. And what they have now that they think that was going to satisfy everything and make them one who has arrived, only find out that it is an empty shell and they have to go to bed at night with the guilt of knowing what they did to get what they have. Most miserable of people. Bible gives us another warning in Matthew 13, 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of this world, and the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. This is the biggest danger those of us who profess Christ in America have. Because there's always something vying for our attention that should be given to God. Oh, you know what? I would study my Bible, but I have to be at this meeting. And if I go to this meeting, they'll tell me how to invest, and I'll, I'll get more money here. And, well, I, I would come to your Bible study, but somebody gave me tickets to see the Sooners or the Cowboys or put your sports team here. Or I would come, but you know what? I got tickets to this play. Nobody can get tickets to this play at the Civic Center. I want to go to it. And we're constantly being bombarded with things vying for our attention. And then sometimes even worse than that, we choose to do it without it vying for our attention. I don't feel up to it right now. I don't really want to pray. I don't want to read my Bible. All I want to do is sit here and veg out in front of the TV. Or I want to veg out on Facebook. Or I want to get into a book. Or, you know what, I just want to go out back and I want to build a campfire and I'm just going to watch the fire. I just, I just don't have the energy to deal with God. Wow. I said that. I've done that. I do that, unfortunately, a lot more than I want you to know. I don't have the energy to deal with God. What is it about God? It's like, oh, no, God. You know, your Bible study is so taxing. And intercessory prayer is so hard. I just don't have the emotional energy for it. Yeah, this, this sermon's for Bruce Coker. God is not my satisfaction. It's impossible to live that life, isn't it? Isn't it? It is. But we're commanded to. We're commanded to. Let's, let's see some of the scriptures that we need to deal with that tells us what we need to be doing. And I've lost, well, I've lost my way in more than one. Let's look at Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he, being Jesus, and he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Now turn over to 1 John 2. 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 15. First John 2, 15. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. Let's go to Luke. 9:23 Luke 9:23 And he was saying to them all, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. For what good does it do to a person if he gains the whole world, but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes, and in his glory, and the glory of the Father, and of the holy angels. <coughs> and finally, back to Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky that they do not sow nor reap nor gather crops into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more important than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single day to your lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Notice how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor. They do not spin thread for cloth. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow and is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what are we to eat? What are we to drink? Or what are we to wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, the world, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble for its own. So specifically in the Bible that we notice that we're commanded to love God, love God supremely with all our heart, soul, mind, body, strength, everything that is within us is to love God more than anything else. To love God to the point to where even our love for our wife, our children, and others seems like hatred because God is first and foremost in everything that we do, every decision that we make, 
Every thought that we have is to be taken captive to God. Impossible in our own strength. Number two, do not love the world. The world is passing away. The world is your enemy. If you embroil yourself in the things of the world and they are your first love and you are seeking your satisfaction in the things of the world, you will die. Do not love the world. It is passing away. It will not satisfy you. What do we do? Back to Matthew. Love God. Matthew, or excuse me, Luke 23, 25. Deny yourself. You want things. You want things so bad that you're willing to kill others. Deny yourself. Deny yourself and follow Christ. That's where your satisfaction is. In Matthew 6, 25, 34, seek first his kingdom above all else. Because God will provide you what you need here in this world. Do we take the series, these scriptures seriously in the Church of America? And I know I'm being very hard. And I'm being very hard on myself. And I know that this is impossible. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, let's go back to verse 4. If you are a friend of the world... You're an enemy of God. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? We have to live here. We have to eat. We have to have clothes. We have to have jobs. So what's the difference in living in the world and living for God and being a friend of the world? Let me see if I can find it here because I've gone all over my notes. The New Living Translation, I love it. I have picked up James 4, verse 4 from the New Living, and this is what it says. If your aim in life is to enjoy the world, then you're an enemy of God. Also, if it's our chief concern, if our chief concern is placed in the ways of the world that do not follow the standards established by God, his people, and his, for his people, then we're friends of the world. So here's one thing I do not want you to take away from this sermon. Do not take away that I am telling you, you can't enjoy anything. You have to get up in the morning and you have to read your Bible. And then you be reading your Bible or listen to a sermon while you're cooking breakfast. And then on your way to work, you're listening to a sermon, you're reading your Bible. Then you do your work and you come home and it's right back. No, I am not saying that at all. God gave us good things to enjoy. God sometimes gives us vacations. Some of y'all have just gotten back from vacations. We have our pastor that's on vacation now. If God gives you the gift to go on a vacation where you go with your family and you make memories and you connect with your family, that's a gift from God. What's the difference? Are you pursuing with all your heart, your mind, and everything that's within you a big bank account? Are you pursuing the ultimate vacation? Are you pursuing a large fishing boat that when you retire, you're going to go out on the Gulf of Mexico and live it up? It's all about the motive of the heart. Because if we go the other way, we have stumbled into legalism. I can't do that because I'm not loving God. If I go on a vacation, I'm not loving God. If I start a savings account, I'm not loving God. If I take a better job, I'm not loving God. That is not what I'm saying. God gave us wonderful gifts here, 
and they're to be enjoyed, but they're to be enjoyed in the right way. What is your focus? What is your intent? Is your intent to love God and to be thankful for his gifts? Perhaps I can make this a little easier for us to understand. There's a guy I love. His name is George Mueller. And I don't know if most of y'all have heard of George Mueller. <coughs> but basically, George Mueller was in the late 1800s. He was a, a German guy that really started off badly, and God saved him. And as God saved him, he becomes a minister in England. And one of the things that George Mueller does is he takes seriously the word of God that says, seek first my kingdom and I'll add everything else to you. So what George does is he does not tell people what his needs are. He's a minister, he's full-time, he's not making any money outside of the church, not making money from the church. The church does not pay him a salary. But he and his wife, they go and they get down on their knees and they pray to God, God, we need this food, we need shelter, we need this, we need that. And God would answer their prayers without anybody else knowing what they needed, people would come through with money, with food, with gifts. And he lived his entire life like this. But what makes it most amazing is not only did he live his entire life like this, he started an orphanage. He started an orphanage that by the time he died had several huge buildings in England, housed several hundred orphans, and he never asked anybody for a penny but prayed only to God and the money came to build these orphanages. God answered his prayers and his humility. There's even a story once that they didn't have anything to eat and the orphans were hungry and it was time for breakfast. And George Mueller prayed and said, thank you for what you're going to provide for us. There was a knock on the door. Somebody comes with bread. Another, somebody comes with jam. Somebody comes with milk. And they had breakfast. I've read his autobiography, and I, if you have a chance, I really recommend it. Several times in the, he said, my faith has really been tested. I was very afraid, but God has always been faithful. So I tell you that story to tell you this. This is how George Mueller lives. He says, first thing in the morning, my first and most important thing that I do is I make my soul happy in God. I get up in the morning, I get in my Bible, I get on my knees, I commune with the Lord, and I make my soul happy. He said, then I have a very busy day. Obviously, he's running all these orphanages. He's quite the busy businessman. And this is what I like, and this is what's important for here, and we can use this as an example. He says in his autobiography, at the end of the day, I certainly have no energy left for people. I have no energy left for anything. I'm completely drained. Oh, how I long and look forward to when I can go home and retire to my prayer closet. Not, I'm so vegged I can only watch TV. Not, I need to break, I need to get away and from this or that. But no, he went to his prayer closet and there he was refreshed. Does that sound familiar? Who else went to his prayer closet a lot? Not really a closet, out in the wilderness. Remember when Jesus, he healed Peter's mother-in-law? And then all these people come and he's healing and he's healing and he's healing way into the night. And what does the Bible say? Early in the morning, before anybody else was up, Jesus goes out in the wilderness to pray. 
and then they go to look for him, and he's energized. Or what about the time he says, oh, I'm tired. We need to get away from this ministry. Let's go out into the wilderness and the people follow him. And he sees them and he has compassion on them and he says, you know, bring me what you have. We feed 5,000 men plus all the, the women and the children. And then what happens? He sends them home. He sends the disciples away. He goes into the wilderness to pray. He's physically exhausted or he's only had a few hours sleep and he's up before dawn and he's in the prayer closet. And it's in the prayer closet where we commune with God, that we find our soul satisfaction, that we make ourselves happy in God, that we are satisfied in God so that we don't need the other things. The other things are fine unless they control our lives. The other things are fine unless it's our soul. We are just so hung up on getting that that it chokes us out. Our joy is in the prayer closet. Our joy is alone with God where he supplies the energy. And I'll tell you, I have said in my heart many times, I just don't have the energy for God. But every time, and unfortunately there are fewer than I would like to admit, that in my mind I forced myself into the prayer closet Wow, how sweet the communion. When you come to God and you have nothing, and you said, God, I don't even know how to start. I'm so tired. I'm so depressed. I'm just overwhelmed. God, and God says, go to the Psalms. And you go to the Psalms, and you start reading the Psalms. And you start praying the Psalms. And you're by yourself, and you're with God, and all of a sudden, your soul is happy and your soul is satisfied, go to the prayer closet. That's where your satisfaction is. Don't let America pull you down into the depths of its depravity with all the stuff, with all the things. You know what dissipation is? The Bible warns against dissipation. Dissipation, now, a lot of them say, oh, well, dissipation means you're drunk, and, you know, you're kind of, you spend all your time drinking. Well, that, that is part of it. But in chemistry, dissipation is when you have a substance and it dissipates, it's gone. And Jesus warns us, do not live your lives in dissipation. Do not waste your lives in mind-numbing entertainment. You can get on Facebook and scroll for hours. And you look up, it's like, I've just wasted four hours of my life. Not only have you wasted four hours of your life, what have you done? You've let the world put its garbage into your mind. And guess what? Four hours you've wasted, but you're not now satisfied with what you have. You've seen how everybody else lives. By the way, they don't live that way. It's all fake. It really is. People do not live that way. Not everybody is happy all the time. People like that are called liars, okay? But you've let the world in, and you're not satisfied with God, and you're not satisfied with your wife, and you're not satisfied with your house, and you're not, you name it, you're not satisfied with it. Go to the prayer closet. Now, am I saying you need to go home right away? No, I'm not saying that. Am I saying it's wrong to come home and watch Andy Griffith while you're eating dinner? I am not saying that. 
But I'm saying that if you are putting your stock and going, if I could just watch an Andy Griffith, I'll be all right. That's the problem. That's the problem. Where is your joy? It's in the prayer closet. But take joy in a good novel. Take joy in a good movie or a good play. Take joy in your family. Take joy in your vacation. But you know what? If there's somebody in need, if you're banking on a large bank account, like the man that's wanting to build the more barns, you're in big trouble. That's where he's putting his refuge. What does it say in the Bible? Where does David say his refuge and his strength comes from? It's in the Lord. You take refuge in the Lord, in the prayer closet, in the scriptures, in communion with him, in meeting with his fellow saints. That's where we get our joy. That's where we get our satisfaction. If you're looking for the big bank account, if I can hardly wait till I retire and I'm going to travel, you're an enemy of God. You're an enemy of God. Do you want to be an enemy of God? Oh my goodness. What are the enemies of God, the only thing that they have to look forward to? A consuming fire. God is a consuming fire and he will destroy his enemies. After death comes the judgment. You've lived your life like the rich man who ignored Lazarus. He dies and he's in a place of torment. He hadn't been judged yet, but he's in a place of torment. And he knows judgment is coming. So he's in a place of torment, waiting for the final judgment, waiting for the final torment, which he knows very well is going to be the lake of fire for eternity. The lake of fire for eternity. Sometimes we forget that that should scare us. That should terrify us. The lake of fire for eternity. There is no hope. There is no hope. People can live through hardship if there's a hope. I just know that it'll end. This is terrible, but every second that goes down, that brings me a second to the conclusion. There's a hope. There's a light. I know that this will end. When you're in hell, it doesn't end. Ever. That should scare us. And that should bring us to our knees when we look and see people that we love that don't know Christ. We know very well that it's God that grants them their repentance. But what are we doing? And are we a witness? Well, I'm afraid to go. I'm not talking about that. What does your life look like? What does your life look like? The best witness that we can give our loved ones who are lost is a life where we are close to God, reflecting his glory, because we spend time in his word and time in the prayer closet. And we are satisfied with God. And they will go, what is different about you? The things of the world don't hold anything for you. Why? Because I'm satisfied with God. That is the best witness that we can give to our families and friends who don't know Christ. But yet, what do I do? I'm continually going to these legal education seminars and going, yeah, I'd like to make more money. Yeah, I'd like to do this. I'd like to do that. Instead of saying, no, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. Why not? Because I don't need it. I don't want to do it. It's going to put a scar. It's going to put a division between me and my Lord. Like when I am doing things right every once in a while with my wife, and then I blow it and I do something wrong, it puts a, a wall between us that I have to take down again. 
It's the same thing with God. Sin separates us from God. God never lets go of us. But when we sin, it puts a barrier between us and God, and we cannot see his glory, and we cannot commune with him. So we must constantly be confessing sin, constantly examining our lives in light of Scripture. What are we doing? Are we spending time in the prayer closet? That's where our satisfaction is. That's how we win people. You ever hear that Steve Green song? He says, to love the Lord our God is the heartbeat of our mission. Okay? That's the heartbeat of our mission. The spring from which our service overflows. If we try and go out and we try and do service for God, and we have not spent time in the prayer closet, if we are not reflecting God's glory, we're going to fall horribly short, and we are going to put a mark on God's glory. If we are constantly in the presence of God and we are reflecting his glory, then we're going to make a difference and people are going to want to know why. Some people are going to be mad. Some people are going to persecute us. But we don't care because we don't get our satisfaction from them. So I didn't make it through all of the text. I'm running out of time. Wednesday night, I'm going to think and pray about whether I continue this text on to the end or whether I do what I'm, I'm thinking about doing already with, with sin. But I wanted to get this through to us. We're in danger in America. We're in danger in America. Get out of the line of Disneyland and go to your prayer closet. Let's pray. Father, what can we say? Lord, I pray to you, and here I am standing more guilty than anybody else as one who chases after the things of this world. Oh God, I confess to you that I'm a double-minded man, that my loyalty is divided, and I just seek your forgiveness. Lord, help me to do what you command. Grant what you command. Lord, help me to see and not to forget that you are the treasure. You are the treasure. You are the pearl of great worth. How dare I not seek you? Oh, God, help me, because I cannot do it without you. I thank you for this time that you gave for me to prepare a lesson that has hit so close to home with me, and I pray that it has its effect on everybody who hears it, For, Lord, your word does not go out, that it does not accomplish what you've meant. So, God, grant us clear eyes to see when we are living lives that dishonor you, when we are chasing after mud pies, and you offer us a holiday at the sea. Oh, God, have mercy on us. God, help us. Let us go out this week. And let us seek your face with all that we are. Lord, help us to live up to the potential for you had for us, for the good works that you've ordained for us. God, may we be diligent. Grant us mercy and power to accomplish your will. Lord, bring us back safe. Thank you for not destroying us as we deserve but giving us a grace that we can't even imagine this side of the grave. 
May your name be honored forever in Christ's name. Amen.